I want to do something. Uh, we start off first service. As I, I sang this first service, it, it occurred to me that, yes, it's my story, but it's our story. So what I'd like us to do is sing it again and replace my with our each time. Let's do that. This is our story. This is our song. Praising our Savior all the day long. This is our story. This is our song. Praising our Savior all the day long. Amen. Thank you. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. We have been in a sort of a mini-series through the book of Matthew this summer, although I'm not uh, catching by any means uh, every verse, not even every chapter, but uh, spending some time there. I'm going to start reading at verse 18 in just a moment. And this morning we're talking about the parables of the sowers. And if you're paying attention, you might think, well, Maurer, you have too many S's in that. It's parable of the sower. No, I mean parables of the sowers. I intentionally made both words plural. We're talking about two parables with two vastly different sowers. And I think it's helpful to see them side by side in the book of Matthew. And incidentally, Matthew puts them side by side. Uh, and since we're familiar, more familiar at least, with the parable of the soils, or what we often call the parable of the sower, I'm going to start with Jesus' interpretation of that parable. So if you want to follow along in, in verse 18, you can picture uh, Jesus sort of crying out here to the crowds. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for it was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for it was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for it was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Most of us are quite familiar with the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, but the, the parable of the weeds is sort of a like lesser known second cousin, if you will. We sort of know the story, but not, not like the parable of the sower, soils, which is why I think it's helpful to see it uh, side by side. Again, not surprising because Matthew put one after the other. Two parables with two vastly different sowers, but I think when you see them together, it weaves a different picture, a more complete picture. First of all, an interesting tidbit about these parables. Do you know where Jesus was when he preached these parables? Um, I, didn't, I didn't realize this, but I always picture him, because the, the Jesus movies always picture him, I, I think. Uh, he's sort of on the outskirts of town somewhere, and I think it's a Jesus film or Jesus of Nazareth, I can't remember. But he picks up some grain as he's telling the parable, and he kind of throws it along, you know, just to, as an illustration, I think. Well, of course, that he was on dry ground somewhere. Well, I think it's verse 2, it says, And great crowds gathered about him, so they got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd sat on the beach. He was in a boat. Uh, I think, you know, he's in agricultural parables, and uh, here he is uh, floating on the sea. Now, interestingly, pretty much every Jesus movie that I've ever uh, familiar with always has him on dry ground. The only one that I found that got it right was the uh, Mormons. Um, they had it right, so just, you know, it's sad, but, but true point there. But let's take a look again at those soils. The seed, the gospel that fell on the path, Satan immediately stole that away, and there's no result whatsoever. Seed of the gospel on the rocky soil received with joy, but then killed, literally uh, the plant was killed by tribulation and persecution. The gospel seed that fell among the thorns started to grow, but choked by cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches and fell away. Then, of course, the gospel seed that fell in the good soil, uh, those people heard and understood it, and it bore fruit a hundred, sixty, or thirty-fold. Now, there have been some debate over the centuries about which of these soils represent true believers. Now, the first two clearly don't represent a believer, and the fourth uh, soil clearly does represent a believer. So all the debate is always centered on that third soil. And again, in this soil, the sp seed sprouted was choked by the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches. So it did not bear fruit. And the confusion has resulted because the plant is still alive, right? I mean, oftentimes, uh, living things in Scripture, as long as it's alive and hasn't withered away, it represents some sort of, of life. It sprouted and grew. It just wasn't fruitful. So the question that, that is often posed in these debates is, can you be an unfruitful Christian? Is there such a category as an unfruitful Christian? Yes, you're alive, but you're just not bearing fruit. Well, a quick detour over to John 15 helps us with this, where Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So we've got a parallel idea here, right? Uh, those that don't bear fruit are taken up and thrown in the fire, the same as the parable of the weeds. So the answer is simple here. Every true Christian bears fruit because every true Christian is connected to the vine. And there's actually two types of abiding here in John 15. There's abiding related to your justification. In other words, uh, once you are justified and saved, you are connected to the vine. Nothing can change that, and you will bear some fruit. But then there's an abiding, an active, ongoing abiding, uh, which allows us to bear more fruit. Uh, That's part of our sanctification. So every true Christian bears fruit. Now, there are various levels of fruitfulness, but you cannot dispute the fact that all believers must bear fruit. Therefore, only the fourth soil represents a genuine believer, and we see again that fruitfulness is the standard for true faith. But we have a problem in this second parable because the Christian faith, we are told, can be counterfeited. The second parable with a very different sower, right, uh, describes this. Jesus sowed good soil, good seed in good soil, which produced genuine believers, who Matthew refers to as the sons of the kingdom. But the enemy, who we're told here is the devil, Luke calls him Satan, same guy. The enemy uh, sowed sons of the evil one. The result is that the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one cannot be told apart. The counterfeit is so similar to the real thing, they're just indistinguishable. You don't know which is which. Which is why the servant said to the master, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The uh, wheat from this enemy was most likely called uh, poison darnel, and actually these are the two plants side by side. Now from your perspective, which one is the wheat? Which side? From your perspective, which one is the wheat? Yeah, it is. No, it's the left. (laughs) You're confusing me, left and right. The wheat is on the left. Uh, This poison darnel is on the right. And over over the centuries, uh, bits of this found their way into crops of wheat. And they're extremely similar to one another. Uh, and if this wheat gets, if this weed, a poison darnel, gets into your wheat, it's hallucinogenic, first of all. And if you eat too much of it, it will prove fatal to you. But you can tell the difference, right? Well, some of you can. <laughs> anyway, um, we're learning. Uh, the wheat on your left side uh, has this continuous shaft of kernels, and the poison darnel on the other side has sort of segmented uh, uh, sh- parts, uh, shafts of kernels. But remember, this is mature. Now, it hasn't dried out yet. It hasn't turned that, that golden brown color that we like so much in the fall. But these are mature plants. Uh, so you can tell them apart. But the whole parable is in regard to younger plants. And these two plants, you literally, uh, unless you're extremely, extremely careful, could not tell them apart before they reached this level of maturity. 
which is why the, the, ma the master said, no, wait until they reach maturity, then you can tell the difference. But even then, right, if you've got little random pockets of this poison plant scattered throughout the wheat, you'd still have to be extremely careful and make sure you're grabbing the weeds and not mistakenly grabbing a shaft of wheat. Jesus' point is that the fruit can be counterfeited. Now, if you allow this to grow to maturity, it's, it's got kernels in it. So you could, in theory, uh, when it's dried out, you could take it and remove the chaff, and you can grind it up and knead some, some salt and, and yeast into it and make it into a loaf of bread and bake it and eat it. Uh, but if you eat it, you're going to poison your mind, and if you eat too much of it, you're going to poison your body and die. Such is the danger of counterfeit fruit. But we have a problem far worse than physical death here. Jesus is clear. He says, sons of the evil one are going to end up in the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that reminds me of, uh, Jesus said in Luke 12, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, maybe I was just uh, I, I was ignorant, right, early in my Christian life, but I thought that the person who throws you into hell was Satan, right, because that's where Satan dwells, and I mistakenly uh, thought that was the case. Uh, but we have to, to keep two things in mind here. First of all, Satan is not the ruler of hell. So let's get that uh, out of our minds. Uh, he is the ruler of this world. Jesus himself says that, and that's only because God allows such a thing, but he's not going to, to rule in hell, not going to rule anything. Second, Satan doesn't cast anyone into hell. God does that. And in fact, Satan himself will be cast into hell by God at judgment along with, with everyone else who is there. So Satan is not willingly going to hell. Satan is not willingly living as hell in hell. Hell is his eternal punishment from God. God is the one in charge. But I love the, the first sentence says, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. Do, do, do you see the, the almost irony there, how great that is? They can kill your body, but that's all they can do to you. So our response ought to be to that. You know, if somebody is threatening our life, we, lives, we say to them, is that all you got? Really? I mean, is that, the, is that the, tell me that's the best you can do is kill me? Now, I'm serious about that. I really believe that's what Jesus is communicating here. Uh, if you're a believer, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. That's all the harm that you can ever experience. But for the unbeliever, or in the case of Jesus' parables, the, the counterfeit believer, a fate far worse than death awaits them because God can and will cast both body and soul into hell. That is why we are instructed to fear God alone. In the parable of the weeds, the Separation of the wheat and the weeds occurs at the final judgment, at the end of the age. But from our perspective, that takes place at our death, right? It is a point unto men once to die and after this a judgment. So from our perspective, we, we can't wait to the end of the age. Uh, our judgment comes uh, essentially at the end of our death. And since no man or woman knows the day of their death, that means that judgment hangs over unbelievers and counterfeit believers uh, at every moment. So here's a, a practical question. Can you change from a weed into wheat? 
Can you change your soil from rocky and thorny in, into good soil? I'm going to answer that question a little bit later, but first I want to take a deeper dive into what fruitfulness looks like, biblically speaking, because if fruitfulness can be counterfeited, then we really ought to make sure we understand what true spiritual fruitness looks like, spiritual fruit looks like. And to find spiritual fruit, we need look no further than Galatians 5. We're uh, pretty familiar with it. I'd like us to, to read this together, if you would, please. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, right, we're quite familiar with this wonderful list of character attributes. But tell me this. Have you ever met anyone in your whole life who is not a believer who has many or most of these character attributes? Right? Of course. Absolutely. So you're telling me, in other words, a Mormon can be loving and gentle and kind? Is that true? Can a Muslim have joy and peace? Can an atheist exhibit patience and self-control? Yes, of course, all of them can. Anyone can. Because demonstrating these character qualities does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is repenting of your sins and turning to Christ and trusting in Him and Him alone. So if anyone can look like a genuine Christian, what does it mean for genuine fruit to be demonstrated? Well, first of all, the fruit of the Spirit is not a character attribute per se. It is something that is generated through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. It is called fruits of the Spirit for a reason. It's not the fruits of rich. It's not the the fruits of hard work. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, yes, we cooperate in that. That's a process of sanctification. But remove the Holy Spirit and you have nothing. What does Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So they are not as simple as we think. They can be counterfeited or reproduced. For example, we see throughout Scripture where Jesus and others sort of up the ante, right? It's not just love your family. It's not love your children. It's love your enemies. See, now we're into some supernatural territory. Anyone can love, but can you love your enemies? Now, we tend to think of enemies as maybe somebody that's close in our life at Maybe it's a work situation or a family member uh, that's really difficult and they're trying to cause you harm, and that certainly would be an enemy. But we have enemies around us all the time uh, f- from a distance. Some, some of them are generally enemies of God and are against him. But, for example, uh, we've heard in, in recent years, not only people who are approving of abortion, but they have this thing where they call, shout your abortion. Don't, don't just promote it, but, but shout it out. Can we love people that say things like that? Can we love the, the woman I saw post on Twitter last week? She said, I don't believe God, but if, I, if there is a God, surely he's in favor of abortion. Can, can we love somebody like that? I'm not talking about approve. I'm not talking approve of, of that position or that blasphemy, but is our first reaction one of judgment and disdain? It's, oh, it's so gross. That person is so gross. Or... Or is there any mercy in there at all? Now, maybe we don't call down fire from heaven like James and John wanted to do on the town that wouldn't believe. Maybe we're not like Jonah. We run as far away from them as possible. We just we want God's judgment to fall upon them. But are there any hints of mercy and love for these enemies? And you know who sees or doesn't see 
our love and our mercy, our reactions to these kind of things. You know who, who, who sees or doesn't see them? The little ones here especially. Each other, certainly as adults, but, but, but your kids see how you respond to these things. My kids have seen it, and, and this, this was very convicting uh, for me as well this week. So we talk about discipling your children, and we think, well, you know what, uh, i got to sit down with my Bible and open up and, 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 and walk them through this little text, and maybe we sing a song. Yes, that's discipleship, but how you respond to your enemies is maybe, maybe more powerful form of discipleship than the little Bible study. Can we love these people. What, what about people who want to take away your guns, right? All, all these, these, these things that we have such strong opinions about. What about people who want to force you to get vaccinated? What about the San Francisco uh, gay men's choir who sang a song that they say, say they want to come and take our children? Do we love them or do we really, in our heart of hearts, would, would rather that fire come down and consume them? You just go through lists. list. the same thing over and over. It's not just joy. I mean, last week, my, my whole family was in this front row, and I had, I had tremendous joy because of that. You know, I, I take, we, Karen and I take walks with, with the dog, and, and a simple walk at evening, we go got down to this uh, one area where there's a, a pasture off to the left, and the evening sun hits that. And every time we hit it, just the right moment, it's just, it's just one of the most beautiful pastor, uh, pastoral scenes uh, in our area. Uh, there's great joy there, but is there great joy when you experience in the midst of trials. Can we do that? Uh, moving on. Uh, patient. Patient in tribulation. Uh, is, is that possible? Uh, if Again, if vaccine mandates are foisted upon the United States as they have been in France, can you see yourself sort, sort of picture out there uh, this happening to us? Do you see yourself being patient? Have you ever put that word in with that possibility, the word I haven't before uh, a couple of days ago? Can you be patient in that? Are we in any sense patient like Jesus is patient? Why is Jesus patient? Because his judgment is being delayed. Why? So that more come to faith in him and repent. So instead of, as we see this crumbling culture around us, we're constantly upset and burdened by it, and we throw stones and we throw names at them, instead of constantly being uh, overwhelmed uh, because of the crumbling culture around us, could we be uh, more patient because we know that that crumbling culture, the longer God delays, the more people will get saved. Not might, not might, there's no, there's no might there, will get saved. Can we be patient in tribulation and persecution for their sake? Not for our sake, but for theirs as Jesus is merciful? We can just keep going through the list. Gentle, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We get in Twitter fights and Facebook fights and maybe actual arguments or fights with, with family members or somebody at work. And, and Is gentleness in any sense your, your go-to behavior? Or do you actually, again, fire from heaven, it would be a lot easier if you just kind of wiped them out and be done with it. See, these are the kinds of fruits of spirit, of the, of the spirit, uh, that can only be fruits that can only be grown by the Holy Spirit, right? They're impossible without the spirit. You know what also these 
difficult circumstances. There's the character attributes that are woven together with these difficult circumstances. What they have in common is that they are the exact same enemies that threaten our faith that Jesus listed in these two parables. And they are as follows. You've got Satan. Satan is sowing seeds of the enemy in our midst, and he's also stealing the actual gospel seeds that are sown about. We have tribulation and persecution arising on account of the word. That's ongoing and will only get worse. And then, of course, we have the cares of this world weighing down upon us and the deceitfulness of riches that is constantly tugging at our hearts. True fruit of the Spirit continually battles against the very things that can make us fall away. You know what we need to stop doing? We need to stop telling each other in church to be nice and good little Christians. We need to just stop doing that. Do you realize how many Christian sermons and Christian books and Christian podcasts and songs and Bible studies are all about being better and nicer Christians? Better marriages, better parenting, better finances, better time management. At the end of the day, they're essentially telling us to be better at being counterfeit Christians at just developing some nice habits. Now, we've already agreed that you can do many of these things without the power of the Holy Spirit. There are even some people who can love their enemy without the Spirit. It's much more rare, but, but you can do it. But we've got to quit telling people to be nice and loving because spiritual transformation is not behavior modification. Let me say that again. Spiritual transformation is not behavior modification. It's a miraculous work of the Spirit that causes inner transformation, transformation from the inside out. That's why we recently added uh, to our fruit-to-root diagram that I use occasionally. See at the top there, spiritual transformation is not behavior modification. You can't go from from having a little bit of fruit and just kind of will your way and, and, and try as hard as you can and then suddenly produce all these good things. You can't do it. Or if you do, uh, it's not going to be true spiritual fruit. Christianity is not a behavior modification. It's a relationship with Jesus who offers miraculous power to change us from the inside out. So when we ask, this question, what does spiritual fruitfulness look like, true spiritual fruit? We're asking essentially a worship question. Do we worship God or do we worship comfort and freedom from persecution, even future persecution? Jesus said that many will fall, many will fall away because they fear persecution and do not worship God. Do we worship God or do we worship the riches and pleasures and deceitfulness of this world? Do we worship God or do we wish to protect our lives at all costs? So when I say, is that all you got? Is that the best you can do? We say, well, I didn't want to get close to that. Someone taking my life. It's always a heart and worship question. So back to a former question I posed. Can you change from a weed into wheat? Can you go from rocky and thorny soil into good soil, sort of a tricky question, because in one sense, the answer is no. There's some sovereign work happening behind the scenes, but, but in another sense, in, in the practical sense, it doesn't matter, because we're not asked 
to, uh, in these parables, we're not asked to, to peer into uh, God's hidden work, you know, behind the scenes. We're just asked to respond as you're supposed to. So if the gospel seed is sown into your heart, don't worry about what God's doing behind the scenes. Your responsibility is to repent and believe. That's it. That's what we can do. That's, that's what we must do. And if you're not experiencing fruit, and I mean like, I don't mean you're a little fruit or you're struggling your fruit or wish you had more fruit, but if you're not experiencing fruit, it could be I don't know your heart. I'm just saying, biblically speaking, it could be that the seed of the gospel has not actually yet taken root in you. A pastor whom I have great respect for told me this week, he said, he's come to the conclusion there are far more unbelievers in his church than he'd ever realized. It's a sobering thought. Now, in one sense, that's good, isn't it? I mean, bring them all in, all Thousands of them, and that would be fantastic. Bring them all and allow them to hear the proclamation of the truth week after week. That would be a great thing. But on the other hand, why would you listen to be truth being proclaimed week after week and month after month and year after year and not do anything about it? These parables remind us that there are counterfeit Christians, and they remind us that there are uh, People who begin to look like a Christian but, but never actually become fruitful. They're not actually believers. Now, the last thing I want to do is plant doubt in your mind whether or not you're saved. On the other hand, I'm quite clear, Jesus wants us to examine ourselves. He, he has these parables of the soils. He, so he has these parables of the weeds so that we ask these very questions. Do Am I producing true spiritual fruit in keeping with repentance? Because fruitfulness is the standard by which we judge. Then, if, you're, if you've received the gospel seed, then it becomes our responsibility to depend on the Holy Spirit to fight all these enemies that are constantly waging war against our soul, all the combined forces of the world and the flesh and the devil, everything that's in this passage and everything throughout scripture, because the devil hates you with an intense hatred, with an intense passion, and he will do everything uh, until uh, he is cast into hell himself to keep your faith from sprouting and becoming fruitful. Let me read again Jesus' description of the, of the good soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. By the way, this is why, why we have a tree in the middle of this diagram. I usually am talking about sort of the things in the outside of the diagram. But we have a tree there because it, it represents fruitfulness. Uh, the kingdom of God is alive. The kingdom of God is a living entity and spiritual fruitness is, fruitfulness is being demonstrated here. At least that's our attempt. And you see on the, the left side, there is some fruit. That means that person's a genuine believer, but there's not a lot of fruit. Uh, and then you go through this hard work of examining your heart and your, your worship, what you're worshiping, the idols of your heart, and uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, repenting and believing. And slowly, slowly, over time, you, with the Lord's uh, miraculous help, can help you be more fruitful. And Jesus says, in one case, 100, in one, 60, in another, 30. I call that a promise 
but not a guarantee. He promises fruitfulness to every Christian, but not every Christian is guaranteed the same level of fruitfulness. Did you see? It's a promise, but it's not a guarantee. Think about the possibility of, of 30-fold spiritual fruit. That's, that's 3,000%. 60-fold, 6,000%. 100-fold, 10,000% increase in your spiritual fruitfulness. Now, if you had $10,000 lying around, everybody does, and you're able to put it in a bank, and you're guaranteed in 10 years it's going to be a million dollars. Listen, that's a 10,000% growth. We would do that. Do you want a 10,000% growth in your spiritual fruitfulness? Does that resonate with your heart at all? Is, is that, that something that, that you thirst for, that something you desire? Do you, do you want more Jesus? He says, it's possible. With the power of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's possible. Let, let me end how Jesus closed these two parables. He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Father, if, if we're honest... We open our Bibles and we see extensive lists of impossible commands. Be perfect. Impossible. Yet, your son, through his death and resurrection and ascension, can take that sin upon himself, has taken it upon himself, and gives us instead his very righteousness, miraculous, infinitely miraculous event. And now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us all the time who is, who is convicting us of our sin, encouraging us uh, and comforting us in our, in our sorrow and grief and depression all the time miraculous power to obey impossible commands like, like love your enemies. Can't do it, Lord, but help me. And Father, if we don't even want fruitfulness, may we pray a prayer and ask you to, to give us this hunger. Give, give us this thirst for you. Give us as the deer pants for water so our souls, our inner beings long for more of you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.